Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're talking about living off of your investments. When you retire and you need your portfolio to produce the lifetime income to produce the retirement you deserve. The main idea is here, we're going to talk about the 4% rule that is so common. Is it still relevant? Is it appropriate? Uh, What do we think about that? When you retire and how that may impact your ability to withdraw your portfolio. And lastly, how, how might you be able to implement a portfolio where you could take more than 4% and what options you have there and how it specifically applies to oil and gas retirees? Justin, we think about this idea a lot. What are kind of in addition to that, what are some of the big ideas that you have uh, related to this topic that, that our listeners need to be aware of? This would be a foundational topic for financial planning in general. One thing I, I tell our clients is that what we do is very straightforward. It's not rocket science. Uh, we're essentially covering five areas, and those five areas are simply the five pillars of financial planning as defined by the CFP board. So what are those? Estate planning, insurance, those are some of the defensive parts of your financial plan. And then we have tax planning, uh, we have investing or portfolio management, and then lastly, retirement planning. And so this podcast, entirely about retirement planning, but I mentioned those five pillars because retirement planning touches all of those other ones. Uh, And really, those five are all interconnected. How you build a retirement income strategy. It has estate planning implications. It has really substantial tax implications. And it also is very much connected to how you invest your portfolio. So we have a lot of uh, things to cover. And essentially, we're trying to ask and answer two simple questions when you think about retirement planning. We're trying to we're trying to answer how much money do you need to be financially free? So how much money do you have to get to? What what is the number that allows you to entertain the possibility of making work optional? And then the second question is once you're there, how do you maximize? How do you uh, get as much juice out of the squeeze, if you will? How do you maximize the amount of income you can take every month from your portfolio? Yeah. That's exactly right. And I think a good starting place for us is kind of talking about the 4% rule because it's it's common. You've probably heard it. So we'll talk about the origins of it and the nature of it. And that'll kind of bleed into some of the problems or I guess inconsistencies within it that we'll want to build upon as we begin this conversation. So just to paint a, in broad strokes, the 4% rule, there's a financial planner. His name is William Bengen, and he produced some research in 1994 that basically talked about a safe withdrawal rate. So trying to identify, okay, how much how much could you safely take from a portfolio over any 30-year period without depleting the portfolio? And as you can see, just if we stop right there, there's a few issues with that idea, right? The first is the 30-year distribution. So, you know, depending on when you're retiring, we see a lot of clients in their late 50s, early 60s retiring. So they could easily have a distribution period that is 40 years 
right? So that's one of the problems. Another one of the problems is this, uh, if, if you look at the paper, and we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes, but 4% was the lowest amount that you could take from the portfolio. So assuming that the markets returned below the lowest historical 30-year period, you may retire with more money than you had planned for. So it, it's really interesting. And this is helpful. And this research was really helpful. But there's been a lot since that paper was published in the mid 90s that's that's really kind of built upon that and painted some context. And one other thing about this paper, it assumed 4% was 4% of the account portfolio was taken and that that amount was linear and it just increased for inflation. So basically you continue to take 4% and there's an uptick to to match your expenses with inflation and, and to tick those expenses up. But one of the things we'll talk about in this episode is spending is rarely linear. So that's where the the initial 4% rule comes from and kind of how we got here. Justin, anything you'd add to that? Yes. So understanding the 4% rule is uh, the beginning of understanding how to retire and maximize your income. So let's put, uh, that was a perfect definition of what it is. Essentially, you have a portfolio. And what does 4% rule mean? It means you can take 4% of your assets from your portfolio every year. Not every month, not every quarter, 4% every year. So let's do a, a real example to uh, give feed to this. Let's say that you retire at age 60 and you have $3 million. Well, the 4% rule would tell you uh, that you can take 4% of 3 million. What is that? 4% of 3 million is 120,000 a year. Now, one thing that's interesting that a lot of people miss is the 4% rule assumes, just like you mentioned, Jared, that you're taking 120000 in year one. Then in year two, you're taking 120000 plus inflation. So if you just use two and a half, three percent 3% as an inflation number. So then year two, you're taking 123000 Year three, you're taking 126000 Year four, year five, every year you're giving yourself an increase. Important thing to point out here, uh, 24 years later, if you use a 3% inflation rate, 24 years into retirement, you're actually taking 240000 from your portfolio in year 24. So that just illustrates that as uh, the years go on, you are taking more uh, from your portfolio. I think one of the most critical things for us to cover here is uh, what exactly did the 4% rule unearth? Uh, what did it show us? And what I really want to talk about is the 4% rule to lay some groundwork. It essentially was a research project looking back over the last century. So Bill Bangin uh, put together a 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks. Initially, this was all uh, U.S. large cap S&P 500. And Bill Bangin was looking at 1920 to 1950, 1921 to 1951, 22 to 52, and onward. So every rolling 30-year period in the last century, well, at the time that he did it, every rolling year rolling 30-year period, Bengen was essentially trying to find what was the single worst time to retire. What was the worst 30-year stretch of the past century? And what was the highest withdrawal rate you could take from your portfolio starting out that would still make it just fine during that 30-year window? So let's talk about that real quick. Jared, any guesses over the past 100 years, what was the worst time to retire? I know the answer. So I, I'm not going to make a guess, but what is the worst time to retire, Justin? 
<laughs> the worst time to retire is the mid to late 1960s. And what's interesting is the mid to late 1960s didn't necessarily have some catastrophic market crash. So why was it such a bad time to retire? There's a few factors going on that, uh, and those, those factors are pretty interesting because they could be similar to a hypothetical scenario for our situation today in the, in the coming years. So 1966, 1967, over the next 30 years, What's interesting, it, like I mentioned, wasn't a huge market crash. There wasn't a dot-com bubble. Uh, there wasn't a 2008-2009 crisis where the stock market loses 45% and some of the international markets lose 50-60%. Uh, that didn't happen in that year. But what did happen was starting in the mid to late 60s, for the next 12 years, uh, returns in the stock market were really muted. So they were they were just much lower than average. So in other words, it wasn't that there was a big 50% drop, but instead there was a low period of returns for an entire decade. So that tells us something that, that's really critical to understand. And that is when you're trying to plan for retirement income, a market crash really isn't the boogeyman that most people think that it is. A market crash isn't your biggest threat. In reality, it's it's the first 10 years of retirement having really low returns, much lower than you expect and much lower than, than history uh, tells us they should be. Now, what about inflation and interest rates? How do those come into play? That's a great question because, right, like interest rates over these various time periods have moved a lot, right? And so that's, that's a consideration because the fixed income portion of your portfolio, I don't know what it was returning in the late 60s, but it was multiples higher than what, what you can get today. So the economic environment is slightly different. But kind of what you were talking about, well, I, I want to circle back with that. You basically define sequence of returns risk. When you retire matters, right? So if you retired in the late 60s, the 4% rule, which was actually the worst time to retire, still held true. But we have a piece of research here that we can we can touch on uh, and we'll share it. It's a kit-sisted analyze the terminal value of a 60-40 portfolio after after 30 years with a withdrawal rate of 5%. And 75% of the time, you ended up with more money than you started with, which is just a, a profound idea. So three out of four scenarios, even with a higher withdrawal rate of 5%. And of course, in that 60s period, you depleted your portfolio, which is the scenario you don't want to solve for and the thing you want to protect against. But from a probabilities perspective, 75% of the time preserving your initial contribution and having more money than you started with, that's that's profound. It really is. And uh, you think about sequence of return risk, and I, I would say there's a component there where you have to understand the risk of stock market returns, and you have to understand the risk of what is the bond markets doing. And so the reason I bring up interest rates is in the late 60s, all the way into the 70s and 80s, what was happening during that time was interest rates were going up, right? And so if you are listening to this and you purchased a house in 1982, maybe 1985, you uh, probably can remember rather emphatically that uh, your interest rate when you purchased that house was probably 12, 13, 14%. Interest rates were unbelievably high in the 80s. And so what were interest rates in the 60s? Well, they were a lot lower than that, and they were increasing. And so one thing that you have to hit on when you think about retirement income planning is you have to kind of understand how do bonds work. 
and it is it is important to kind of dive into the weeds there because when you retire, you vast majority of people are not okay having all of their portfolio in the stock market, right? You're just typically not able to sleep at night if you have that much investment risk. Therefore, you're going to own a substantial portion of bonds. Uh, back to our example, let's say that you retire at age 60 with $3 million. It would be normal for you to have a million dollars or more in bonds. And so understanding how bonds work really helps us understand retirement income planning. And what's the biggest risk? Again, it's not a market crash risk. It's what happened in the 60s. Why was that such a bad time to retire? Well, we had low stock market returns, but we had interest rates going up. When interest rates go up, that hurts bonds. So if you're going to have a huge chunk of your portfolio invested in bonds and interest rates might go up continually for a decade or more, that's going to lower the return that you get on those bonds. So not only did you have low stock returns, but you also had pretty tough bond returns as well. And Justin, you just want to talk through the math real quick of why increasing interest rates lowers bond prices. Talk about that inverse relationship. Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's pretend um, one thing I love to do is just define what what even is bond investing. So essentially, if stock investing is owning a share of the future revenue of a real business, uh, bond investing is, is being a bank to a real business. Let's use an example. Let's say that Coca-Cola is wanting to raise cash to go do whatever they want to do in their business over the coming years. So Coca-Cola might issue bonds. So if you purchase a Coca-Cola bond, and let's say you purchase a 10-year bond. So if you purchase a 10-year Coca-Cola bond and it's paying 5%, not going to get that these days, but I wanted to use a round number. So the 10-year Coca-Cola bond at 5%. Uh, well, let's pretend that interest rates go up. And two years from now, Coca-Cola wants to raise more money, but interest rates have gone up. So they can't issue a bond at 5%. They have to issue that same 10-year bond at 7% for this example. But what did you do? You purchased a Coca-Cola bond two years ago that only pays 5%. Well, if someone today can go buy a Coca-Cola bond for with a 7% coupon rate and yours only is, is paying 5%, what happens to the value of your 5%? It goes down. It's not worth as much. Nobody would want your 5% bond unless they can buy it at a discount, which that brings up a pretty interesting point that's very relevant for today. What's the solution to that? And a lot of times it's understanding duration and how to have a lower duration and how lower duration can minimize your risk in bonds. Jared, do you want to touch on that real quick? Yeah, essentially, um, kind of like Justin said, there's an inverse relationship between interest rates and the price of bonds, right? Like if, if rates rise, your bond price has to be adjusted to match the market rate if you were going to go and sell that. But uh, one of the things about bond pricing is the price fluctuates, the, volati the price volatility is greater the longer your duration is. So that, you know, if you're holding 30 year bonds and interest rates move 1%, that bond is going to be, have a, a more of a negative price jump than uh, a shorter term bond. So if, if there's a potential rising rate environment, having shorter duration could help with the adjustment in, in price. Um, and that, and that's definitely something that, that we think about and that you need to be mindful of, but related to bonds, Justin, rates are not great right now. So, you know, this kind of gets into a structuring of the portfolio. If, you know, if, if the 10 year is right now, it's, it's near 2%. What, 
what's the purpose of holding bonds and how do we think about that and how does that impact our ability to retire? Because the return probably doesn't help that 4% at least safe withdrawal rate. Why are we holding them and kind of where do they where do they fit into this equation in terms of thinking about retirement? I think the most direct answer, I'm going to give a short answer and a long answer. The short direct answer is that bonds can provide an incredible amount of security for your for your income needs in the next five years. And so one concept that we like to touch on is the idea of a war chest. And so if you think about your money and you think about how to allocate uh, how much of your retirement portfolio should be in stocks, how much of it should be in bonds or cash, well, it is pretty important that we have whatever you're going to take in the next five years from the portfolio. We really should avoid stock market risk there, right? We firmly believe that you cannot time the market. Just did a podcast on that and included a lot of insight in our investment manifesto podcast. So if we don't have the ability, and not just us, Goldman Sachs doesn't have the ability, a uh, random person in another hemisphere doesn't have the ability, no one has the secret of knowing where's the stock market going to go? How do we avoid downturns? So what that means is we have to protect your income in the next five years by using bonds. So the short direct answer is bonds are a critical part of your portfolio in retirement because that's where you're going to take income in the next five years from. Now, I also want to give a little bit of a longer answer uh, that again highlights where we are today in understanding the retirement income outlook. So the purpose of bonds in the 1980s and the 1990s It didn't just give you less volatility than stocks. Uh, It also gave you a pretty large return, right? So I want to kind of dive into the logic behind bonds even further. So in 19, let's say 1982, interest rates just unbelievably high because interest rates from the mid-60s all the way into the 80s, interest rates are going up. Another factor there, inflation uh, was going up as well. So why was it so brutal to retire in 1967? Well, because you had not great stock market returns for the next 10 years. Uh, You had pretty tough bond returns because interest rates were going up and you had inflation. So everything in life was getting more expensive. But let's, let's go into the bond question of what was happening in the 80s. So if you purchase bonds in the mid 80s, let's just... 1985, Kansas City Royals won the World Series, and you decide to go buy a bunch of bonds. So in that scenario, you buy bonds in 1985, they might have a 12% unbelievable interest rate. You're making so much money on these bonds. And 1986, 1987, 1988, as the years go on, the interest rates start coming down. So what's happening in those bonds that you purchased in 1985? Well, their value is actually going up. So back to my Coca-Cola example, 1985, Coca-Cola, maybe they're giving you a 12% coupon rate on your bonds. Well, 1990 comes along, Coca-Cola is only offering 9%, 8%, but you own a bond with a 12% coupon rate. Your bond is now more valuable. And so you have this dynamic where for 40 years since the early 80s, you had high interest rates in bonds. And your bond was becoming more valuable because interest rates were dropping. And so why do I mention this? Why do we go so much into the detail with bonds? Because retirement income today is a little bit different. If you think about the total return of a bond, the total return of a bond, and you can probably already answer this question based on our last five minutes, 
total return of a bond comes from two things. The original coupon rate that you get when you purchase that bond. So Coca-Cola pays 5%, my first example. That 5% coupon rate is going to be your largest source of return. But the second part of the return, the lesser part, is market movements. And so if interest rates go down, your 5% coupon bond becomes more valuable. Uh, so that's the second way that you can make money in bonds. But the primary way is a high coupon rate. So why do I mention all of this? Today, interest rates are really low, really, really low. And so if a if a 10-year government bond is, is paying 1.5% or 2%, whatever it may be, well, that one and a half, two percent, that is going to be the majority of the return that you get in your bonds. And remember that definition I just gave her. Remember the two sources, the two ways bonds make money. It's the original interest rate, which right now it's really low, so you're not making a whole lot. But then what's the second way? It's market movements. But again, if interest rates are ultra low and eventually they're going to go up, there is a possibility that that second way that you make money in bonds now turns negative just like it did in the mid-60s. And so it's possible that uh, the bonds in your portfolio, it is critically necessary because you have to provide for income in the next five years. But the uh, interest rate that we derive from the bond portion of your portfolio, expectations need to be that it's going to be much less than it was um, 10, 20 years ago. Yes, and that's such an important point and connected to market timing. Because if you don't provide yourself sufficient liquidity to endure a down cycle in the market, you have to sell at the worst possible time. When markets go down, the losses aren't real unless you sell and don't get to participate on the upside like we talked about with volatility. So where bonds really shine is, you know, they do have, like Justin said, they do have volatility, but to a lesser degree than the equity market. So they provide a great balance so that you're not you know, on the wrong side of market timing, taking money out at the worst possible time and kind of what connecting all this together, sequence of returns risk matters. So if two investors have a same annualized return, one has exponentially better returns the first decade, they're probably going to end up with more money simply because the first 10 years matter because that's, you know, those 10 years have another 20 years to compound. So thinking about risk, prudent risk management and the environment in which you're retiring, all these things really come together to determine that 4% rule. I would almost love to, I'd love to add just a really simple example to this. Go back to pretend you're 60, you retire with $3 million. Let's say that there's two scenarios in this. The first scenario, and in and, and both scenarios, you will make the same amount of money over a 30-year window. So scenario one, you make 7% a year. But how do you get to that 7% per year over 30 years? Well, you have a annualized 1% return in the first 12 years, and then you have really high returns in the last 28 years. So that's scenario number one. That could be really problematic. That's what we're saying. That's kind of the point of understanding the 4% rule and understanding sequence of return risk. Even if your 30-year return is quite good and, and plenty to be you know living off of, uh, it is possible that if the sequence of how you get to that 7% year return, if it is really bad in the first decade, uh, that could be that could be really problematic. It, it could put you in a world of hurt. Now, the second scenario is let's pretend that you make 7% a year and the first 10 years are great. You make 10% a year in that first decade and then it tapers off. That is far more favorable. 
Now the difficulty is I just laid out two scenarios and uh, we don't get to choose. Uh, we have no idea which scenario is going to come along. You don't get to uh, pick for the uh, better scenario. Past returns do not have any indication on what the future is going to do. Yeah, and this would be a good time to quickly mention Monte Carlo. So we have this in our financial planning software, and most, most advisors do, or there's some variation of it, which basically simulates various investment return environments. So, you know, like we said in our market timing podcast, an annualized return of 8% rarely means 8% a year investment returns. It, it zigs and it zags. So essentially what Monte Carlo does is it runs a bunch of different market simulations with very different trajectories and sequence of returns risk to see over what percentage of you know, various simulated market outcomes will your portfolio retain its purchasing power. So this is a helpful tool. It's not an exact science, right? And you need to administer it. And there's a lot of components that come into, you know, how reliable that number is. But that's a a helpful resource that we use and that we point clients to to help just begin to get an idea of what the longevity of their portfolio is based on kind of current assumptions and and market. Of course, all of this matters based on market returns, how much flexibility you have in your spending, social security, what that pays out. But it's a great kind of starting point to begin to identify the range of outcomes uh, from a retirement perspective. That's such an important point. I want to kind of piggyback on the Monte Carlo um, analysis because I think one of the traps that people get into is they think of retirement as a simple interest endeavor. And so what I mean by that is picture a graph of age 60 to age 90. And by the way, we're going to come back and hit on this. But uh, if you are retiring and you're in relatively good health at 55 or 60, uh, you need to plan for scenarios where you live well past 90. But If you're at age 60 and you're planning to go to age 90, a lot of people have this incorrect thought that the way that retirement income works is, well, I have $3 million and I want $10,000 a month, $120,000 a year. So I need to find something that pays 4% per year, right? So if you picture this graph, age 60 to age 90, and then what is your return? It's a flat 4% per year. And so meaning you are just gathering simple interest for the next 30 years and your 3 million is going to stay intact and you're just going to live off of the interest. That was really, really attractive if you were able to swing that in 1994. Interest rates were really high. You could find a lot of avenues to park your $3 million and uh, find a lot more than 4% per year. But the problem with that simple interest uh, expectation is, well, you're you're not going to find 4% as an interest rate unless you take on some pretty substantial risk in the bond market. And so if you, if you think about buying a 30-year bond that pays 4%, that's going to be a difficult endeavor. And that's not altogether safe. That's not guaranteed. And so I guess the most theoretically, the most guaranteed is doing a 30-year government bond of, of some type. Theoretically. But, you know, you're trading one, one term of risk for another, right? It's like if you loan your money, your risk is fixed, right? Like you, you're, And your return is fixed. So if things move above that, if market rates move, it feels certain, but it's actually like, you know, it's, equal, it's equally uncertain because you've locked in the scenario, you've locked in your return, but don't get to appreciate on any upside above and beyond that. So, yeah, I just want to put a, an asterisk next to the, the safest, put that in quotes, because inflation is really 
the big boogeyman that you need to protect against. And owning equities long term has been a better hedge than than government bonds. But I get what you're saying in safe. Just had to play devil's advocate. That is that is so critical. Uh, safe needs an asterisk and in quotations because of what you just mentioned in uh, inflation. And that's I mean, if we just cut to the chase here, that's why simple interest just gets destroyed. It's an incredibly dangerous idea uh, because you have to plan for the idea that it is possible that everything in life is much more expensive 10 years from now than it is today. But also safe has to be in air quotes there because you're really just transferring the risk to whoever you purchase the fixed income bond from. And nobody is without entirely without risk. And so if you think about safe interest or pure, just flat interest, uh, that is really faulty because over a 30-year period, it is very possible that that is just not going to meet your needs, not just 30 years from now, but 10 years from now, 12 years from now. We've kind of been lulled into a low inflation expectation. So I don't think uh, some of the CPI numbers are necessarily telling the whole story with inflation. But by and large, as long as you owned your house, so you didn't experience unbelievable asset inflation in the real estate market for the past 10 years, you didn't have a whole lot of inflation. And the price of your life, yes, it did go up, but it didn't, it didn't triple by any means. And we do need to plan for it being a possibility that inflation could really be much more substantial. That's not a prediction. No one necessarily knows exactly where inflation is going to go. Uh, but I think we can all envision scenarios where the next 10 years have much higher inflation than the previous. Let's get super tactical and talk about, you know, we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, how can someone implement a portfolio so that they could take more than 4%? Because let's be honest, a lot of our clients, oil and gas engineering tilt and they hear you know the most conservative number being four percent and they probably want to lock in there but let's talk about some things structurally and, and retirement spending and some of the mechanical components that may give you know some of our clients ease or understanding and how they might be able to take more okay so laying the groundwork you have a diversified portfolio you're 60 years old you have three million dollars you're trying to figure out how much can you take from it the truth behind the 4% rule is you can take more than 4% and you can you can go above and beyond. The author of that rule actually came back and, and said that if you keep the original assumptions, you can really start at about 4.5%. But I would say you can often go to 5 or 6% a year if you do a, or are aware of five different strategies and, and potential ideas that can increase your withdrawal rate. Where should we start? I, I think we should probably hit on the flexibility within your retirement spending. How about we start there? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a gr that's a great place to start. So, you know, one of the problems we talked about with Bengen's original research was linear expenses, right? So there's there's two ideas here, right? Uh, retirement spending is rarely linear. Kitsis talks about this idea, who we just quote regularly. He talks about the go-go, the slow-go, and the no-go years, which essentially means that right when you retire and you're really active, your spending's higher, but as you get older, less mobile, life becomes simpler, your, your spending goes down, and then right near end of life when you need a lot of critical care, it, it goes up again, kind of creating a little bit of a, a, little bit of a smiley face, if you will. So understanding that component may change how you think about 4% because if you're spending more in the beginning, you may be comfortable with taking more knowing that this is a short-term season and, and that your spending is going to ratchet down. 
But on the flip side of that, in addition to the seasonality of life, there's also your personal expense bucketing, right? So there's there's fixed expenses, like irrespective of what the economy is doing that you have to spend. And then there's some expenses that that are more discretionary. And the question becomes, what's the allocation across those? How much of your spending is fixed versus, uh, versus discretionary? And how much how much ability do you have to potentially dial it back a little bit in, in the event of a bear market or, or low investment returns to kind of take less pressure on the portfolio in lower return environments? And, and on the upside, when the portfolio is doing maybe a little better than expected, in, for example, the, the last 10 years, maybe taking a little more, being more aggressive and and kind of really spending a little more than than that rule. So understanding the variability in spending is as seasons change and related to how much control you have over being able to dial up or down your spending is really impactful and could drastically impact the safe withdrawal rate depending on how much control you have over those components and understanding of it. That's right. If you go back to the uh, picture of a graph, um, so the fixed uh, interest, the flat interest retirement where you from age 60 to age 90, you want 4% and it's going to be a flat line. Uh, The 2.0 version of that is that there is inflation. So really, it's going to be an increase over time. But the uh, go-go, slow-go, no-go, that tells us that really that picture of just a rising inflation in retirement, that's not necessarily accurate either. Because it's possible that from age 60 to age 75, you might spend a lot more money than you spend from age 75 to 85 and then 85 to 95. One resource that's going to be in the show notes, and uh, we're going to have some pretty great resources there. A lot of them are going to be from Michael Kitsis, Kitsis.com, and his team produces excellent tax retirement income research that, that is very valuable. We'll attach some some different resources there that show that it's also, it's not necessarily, we're talking about a graph of retirement expenses. Retirement expenses can really fall into four different categories, right? So we could have taxes are going to be one of your biggest expenses in retirement. And so an advisor should should constantly be thinking about the tax consequences of retirement. Number two is going to be your uh, absolutely necessary expenses, right? So the, the money that you will have to spend, um, whether that's your mortgage or your food budget, essential expenses. And then number three could be discretionary expenses, leisure expenses. You don't have to spend it, but you certainly want to. And then the last category could be healthcare. So if we think about being flexible on our spending, well, it's tough to say healthcare, we don't necessarily have a whole lot of control over, right? It's possible that healthcare actually gets more expensive in the slow go and no go years. So healthcare could be more expensive from age 85 on. Taxes, we do have some control there. Essential expenses, uh, we don't necessarily have a lot of control. So leisure expenses, that's where we do have control. Having the ability to be flexible uh, with your discretionary spending, uh, that is a huge factor that allows you to take closer to 6% per year in retirement rather than 4%. Yeah. And two expense considerations we see frequently for our oil and gas retirees is a couple things, right? They have to pay for healthcare out of pocket. They're not yet Medicare eligible. Unless your company happens to have a benefit with that, which is there uh, in some of the time, but not all the time. Correct. Yeah. So in that scenario, you, you know, your healthcare is going to be higher than normal. And then another big consideration is social security, right? So you have a big future income stream coming to you. So a lot of times we'll see we'll see clients taking more, you know, 
substantially more than the 4% rule in light of this gap in funding and the the future value of those social security earnings to kind of offset portfolio pressure over over the long term. So those are two things that we need to consider and we see frequently and could, you know, could create a, a seasonality to to the above average uh distribution from the portfolio. I think that's such a great point. That's an area where a great uh, advisor can add a tremendous amount of value because there are scenarios where you could take 8% a year from your portfolio because we keep putting out the this kind of fake hypothetical where you have $3 million and the question is, can you take 120000 150 or 180000 a year from that portfolio? But in reality, it's not that simple. If you retire at 60, you might pause Social Security until 70. But then at age 70, you've got a big amount of Social Security coming. And so maybe you don't take 5% or 6%. You could potentially take 7 or 8% for that decade because 10 years from now, your portfolio, you're not going to be taking 8%. You might not even be taking 4% because Social Security is able to fill that gap. And so having a great advisor that can understand how do you maximize income in those years before Social Security, and those are years where you probably want to spend more money because you're going to be more active in those years than potentially your later years. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of value that can be uh, added in that area. Yeah. And the other place I could say an advisor adds value is helping the, from a tax planning perspective, you know, if your expenses are 120,000 a year and your distribution strategy is tax inefficient, you may have to take 160 a year, or if it's really efficient, you may have to take, you know, only 125 or 130. So having a trusted professional in your corner, helping you kind of understand the potential tax brackets and break points and increasing the tax efficiency of that distribution strategy could put less pressure on the, on the portfolio in terms of producing you know, enough income needed to support your lifestyle because you need the income and the tax needed to pay for that income production. So that's another important thing to consider. Absolutely critical. Most of our listeners, if you're working at a large oil and gas company, a ton of your assets are in a 401k pension pre-tax. So if you think about all of those pre-tax retirement accounts, your future tax rate on those is, is somewhere between zero and 40%. And you're probably not going to get 0% as as your tax rate, but a great advisor uh, should be very active in getting you as close to the lower tax rates as possible and really finding the optimal lifetime tax rate, uh, kind of your equilibrium tax rate. Uh, Because Jared, that's such a critical, critical point. If you're taking 150,000 a year from a $3 million portfolio, well, it's a lot more enjoyable if you're able to net out a higher portion of that. So if you can net out 135,000 instead of 110,000, that's a material difference in your quality of life. And so understanding the tax consequences, huge part in maximizing your retirement income and uh, uh, increasing what you're able to derive from your portfolio. What else would you say, Justin, in terms of portfolio implementation that can help with going above and beyond that standard 4%? So interestingly enough, investment fees are very much agreed upon as a, a core, core aspect of how much can you take from a portfolio. So investment fees, we've uh, we've talked about this a fair amount. 
Uh, we probably put more content than than most investment advisory firms on this topic, because uh, you know we have a unique fee structure that was created uh, really with our intended audience in mind. And so, working at an oil and gas company, working in the industry. Uh, you typically have more assets than most. And that is largely due to the fact that the matching and pension profit sharing contributions are substantially higher than the average company in America. And so it's uh, not uncommon to reach retirement age with a lot more in assets. And so how does the typical investment firm charge? Well, it's common to charge a percentage of your assets. And most industry studies would, would reveal that it's common to pay about 1.5% on your first million in assets and then 1% on the next couple of million in assets and then maybe a, a pretty substantial break point after 2 to 3 million where maybe you're paying 0.8%, uh, 0.7%, maybe another break point above 5 million and 10 million. But even if you, if you, if you have a $5 million portfolio, very, very common for your blended percentage fee to be 0 0.8, 0 0.91% a year. And if you are paying 40,000 a year in investment fees on a $5 million portfolio, that is again, a material impact to the income that you can enjoy in retirement. Direct correlation uh, between your investment returns and the fees you pay for those investments. Direct correlation between uh, your investment fees and what you're able to derive in retirement income from your portfolio. So if you wanna go above the 4% rule, finding a way to be mindful of the investment fees you're paying and trying to pay less than the industry uh, norm of 1% a year, that can go a long ways over a 30-year retirement, and especially in our case, 40-year retirement. Yeah, distribution friction is such a misunderstood idea, right? Even if you take 5% from the portfolio, if you're paying an advisor 1%, you know, you've already cut your potential distribution by 20% just, just from doing that, which is which is insane and something we need to need to consider. So minimizing distribution friction, both in the form of advisor fees. And just kind of tax planning and making sure that everything's dialed in there. We talked about bucketing a little bit, but I just want to revisit it quickly because that's connected to this idea, right? Of being able to take more. How how does bucketing and thinking about, you know, the war chest you were talking about impact being able to take potentially more than 4% from uh, retirement assets? Yes, critical. Okay, so we have bucketing. I also want to talk a little bit about upper and lower bands. And then we also need to talk about the actual investments on the stock side. So we spent forever on, on bonds, but it is critical. If you want to take 6% a year, you have to pay a lot of attention to the stock side of how you're investing as well. So let's hit on buckets. So what is the bucket strategy? We can include some resources in show notes potentially, but uh, if, if we just paint a really simple picture, pretend that all your money is in a bucket and that bucket is split up into three segments. So the first segment in your bucket is your next 12 months of expenses that you're gonna take from the portfolio. So in the next 12 months, we have absolutely no idea whether the market is going to go up or down in the next 12 months. No one knows that. And so we need that 12 month of expenses. We need that completely safe from market volatility. And by the way, bonds also have a, a small amount of volatility. So we also need the next 12 months pretty safe from bond volatility. We want to maximize the interest rate where we can there, but your next 12 months of income, primary concern is security and safety. And so the first segment within your giant 
a bucket of money, the first segment is 12 months of expenses need to be in a cash-like instrument. And so if we use our analogy of somebody that's wanting 120000 a year, about that much needs to be in a low-duration fixed-income vehicle, whether it's cash or a, a cash equivalent that has a higher interest rate. The next segment is bonds. And so if I if we have the first segment is uh, 12 months, the next segment is years uh, one through five. And so we wanna, we wanna have a four year expenses uh, category. So four years of expenses need to be in that bucket. What's in our example, if you're taking 120,000 a year, uh, what's four times 120, it's 500,000. So then you would need to have about 500,000 in bonds in fixed income. I mentioned that over the next 12 months, uh, we don't know if the market's going to go up or down and that no one does. That same aspect is we have a little bit more confidence, right, that the market could go up in between years two and five, but we do not have absolute confidence. And so if you think about the last century of stock market investing, every rolling five-year period, so 1920 to 1925, 1921 to 1926 and onward, the vast, vast majority of them had positive five-year returns. So in other words, even if you invested a bunch of money in, in 2008, right before the market crash, uh, five years later, it had uh, largely recovered, right? And that is true in uh, most of the market crashes throughout history. But if we have a rolling three-year period, that same fact is not there. And so the reason that we have this bucket strategy is we need to understand that the first segment needs to be super safe. The next segment for the next four years also needs to be safe and not have returns market volatility. And having those buckets, those first two buckets that essentially ensure that your first five years of income is safe, that is your war chest. So that's the bucket strategy. It's segmenting your assets to know that the next five years of distributions that you are going to take, the next five years should not have market exposure. And remember, if you have that five-year war chest, if you implement this bucket strategy, the third segment, the final segment of the bucket is growth. You want to be able to devote significant assets to growth in retirement. Why would we need growth in a retirement portfolio? I thought we were supposed to go super safe, Jared. We need to be aggressive and maintain investments in the equity markets because of what we talked about earlier, Justin, related to what is safe, right? The biggest boogeyman is inflation, just eating away at your purchasing power, right? So the biggest way to insulate against that over the short term, it's not the stock market, right? Because of the volatility we talked about, but long-term continuing to own these companies and the underlying innovation assets and ingenuity that's affiliated with them is the best way to preserve purchasing power over the long term in your portfolio. And touching on what you were talking about, about the bucketing strategy, that's a helpful framework, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every single month you're going to be taking distributions from your bonds. A prudent risk tolerance and risk allocation, if you set you know your investments to 60-40, because like we said, equities will grow at a rate that's faster than bonds. If you don't touch it and you just set it there, you're equity fixed income allocation could easily drift up from 60, 40, 70, 30, 80, 20, if you don't do anything with that. So a good part of prudent risk management is, is when there is in fact a bull market and equity markets are delivering great returns to take some of that equity risk off the table, to 
realize it, to monetize it, and to maintain a, an appropriate risk tolerance and risk allocation that's reflective of, of your risk tolerance. So the bucketing strategy is helpful from a mental compartmental perspective, but that doesn't necessarily mean on the implementation side that you will in fact be taking dollars from fixed income every single month for expenses. That is such a great point. A, a great advisor can add a tremendous amount of value by navigating where should your distributions come from, right? Uh, so love the love the mental picture. Uh, so if you're listening to this, picture one bucket, 12 months of expenses, uh, super, super safe. Picture a second bucket that is uh, four years of expenses in the bond market, uh, trying, to, trying to earn interest, certainly, uh, but again, not subject to market volatility. So you've got your first two buckets that are safe. They are a war chest, but that third bucket has to be growth-oriented. One thing that we do for every client we have is the idea of inversion. So we're trying to ask the question, what what are the worst threats? What are the biggest threats that that could derail things? What are what are the ways that things could really go wrong? And, and how do we plan? How do we stop that? And so if we're asking, hey, how could your retirement success picture really go downhill? It's not a market crash. And so, no, you don't need to put everything in a fixed income uh, instrument to be super safe because that boogeyman is not your greatest threat. Your greatest threat is that you're going to run out of money, period. That's your biggest threat. That's what you need to uh, plan away from. And uh, that is why it's critical to, yes, you must have a war chest because market crashes are happening. They're coming. Market crashes are going to happen on average every five to seven years. Personalize that. If you're 60 and you're going to live until 98 or 100, uh, you could have eight more market crashes in your lifetime. And so they're going to happen. But the war chest, the bucket strategy is how we plan for them. The growth bucket, that final bucket, is absolutely essential because a far, far greater risk is that everything in life is, is a lot more expensive 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Yeah. So the biggest risk, like you said, is the sustained loss of purchasing power. And then the second one is realized losses at the bottom, right? Right at the market bottom, being on the wrong side of market timing and having that bucket prevents both of those scenarios. It ensures a sufficient amount of money can remain in the equity markets and allows you a resource to tap in the event of market volatility, but to but to remain invested. So Let's shift to the next thing, uh, guidance guardrails. What what are those and how do those kind of fit into this? Let's think about bowling. Think if you have the uh, gutter balls and you've got the uh, gutter rails up to uh, protect your bowling ball to ensure that you're hitting the pins. Uh, similar idea here. So we're essentially having those, those safety rails. And let's pretend that uh, back to having a $3 million portfolio at age 60, and maybe you're trying to take a percentage of that each year in retirement income. Well, we want to have kind of an upper guardrail and then a lower guardrail. So the upper guardrail says that if that $3 million continues to grow and it hits uh, $3.8, $4 million, well, let's actually pause. Let's reassess. So maybe you were taking 6% of that $3 million. You're taking $180,000 a year. But if that three million principal grows to four million, well, at that point, let's hit pause and then let's recalculate because you can you can have a raise, right? You can take more than you were initially taking because the market returns have been so uh, positive. It's going in such a great direction. Uh, you can actually give yourself a raise and, and you can spend more money. 
You don't have to. It all depends on your goals, what's important to you. Are you trying to spend more now? Are you trying to leave assets to children or charity? Whatever your goals are. But if that upper guardrail is hit, you can give yourself a raise. Now let's talk about the uh, uh, more difficult scenario that is, is important to plan for. That $3 million, let's say that your principal drops down substantially. We'll just say that the lower guardrail in this example is $2 million, uh, to use another big round number. So if the portfolio has dropped from $3 million to $2 million, and that would be a combination of your distributions and negative market returns, right? So if $3 million drops to $2 million, all of a sudden we've got an upper guardrail, we've got a lower guardrail, and unfortunately we're running into that lower guardrail. So at that point, again, we press pause and we recalculate, reevaluate what is a sustainable withdrawal rate. And essentially it would mean uh, lowering the amount that you're taking in retirement income. If you're willing to do that, and that sounds painful, nobody wants to take less money, right? If you're willing to do that, you can take a far, far higher withdrawal rate uh, than the common 4%. But this is why having good clarity as to your fixed and variable and discretionary expenses, having a good sense of those things matters. Because if, if you need every single dollar that's coming out of the portfolio, you don't have the ability to be opportunistic like that. So this only works assuming that you have a good grasp and a good ability to implement some of the, the changes in the event that you get a raise, or if your withdrawal rate is slightly adjusted due to market variation and volatility. And another example of a, a great advisor can add a ton of value here because it, it is possible that you start out with a higher withdrawal rate, you have some difficult returns, and maybe the answer is that you take social security somewhat soon after bumping into that lower guardrail. Maybe that needs to come into play, but that's an important question to assess and answer with your advisor. This decision and conversation is so personal right? Because numerically, like Justin said, you know, maybe you take social security earlier. It's not numerically the optimal thing to do, but if behaviorally it helps you to remain invested or it makes you feel comfortable or it allows you the, let's say, you know, your risk tolerance is very low and you can't stomach the risk. But if you have a social security port producing income for you, maybe you are more comfortable taking a little more equity risk that's needed to create portfolio longevity, right? This is why this is all so personal. There's the, hey, here, here's what's right from a numerical perspective, but also behaviorally and understanding what you can tolerate and what feels comfortable to you. You know, maybe you're leaving money on the table. Maybe you're paying off your mortgage, even though it's a low value use of those dollars because, you know, then the per most all of your income becomes discretionary and you have a ton of flexibility there, or you can be more aggressive with your equity portfolio. There's really a lot of knobs and levers you can pull, but the importance is having a strategy, continuing to monitor it and understanding all the various nuances and just checking in with an advisor and seeing what options you have. Really glad you brought up that point because I want to paint something real specific with our example. So the bucket strategy, let's just say that you have $3 million and the first bucket, well, if you're and, you know, we said that you're spending 120000 but remember, if you're doing some of these things, you can take a lot more than 4% from your portfolio. But you've got the first bucket with 12 months of expenses. The second bucket has four years of expenses. The third bucket is growth. Now, if we put real numbers to this, it's possible that you have 600000 in cash or cash instruments with a higher interest rate and bonds. So that's your war chest, 600000 in a war chest in safe assets. But that leaves $2.4 
of your three million in the growth bucket, in that third bucket. So that is a very personal decision where that is where your risk tolerance comes into play. I am adamant that risk tolerance is overemphasized in our industry. If you go to an advisor and they're going to charge you $30,000 a year to manage their portfolio and they give you a risk tolerance survey and then they just shove your $3 million into one of their eight canned models that thousands of their clients all share, you start to wonder, is there value there? What am I paying for? But where risk tolerance does matter a great deal is understanding that growth bucket. It's okay if you have a huge appetite for risk. You could theoretically have that growth bucket 100% stocks and real estate as long as it's properly diversified. But it's also okay if uh, you need to have that growth bucket have a little bit more fixed income in there. If we're looking for the academic, uh, what is the academically defensible answer, there's a range there. And it does matter what helps you sleep at night and, and what you're comfortable with. Yeah, the 60-40 portfolio that remains invested is exponentially better than the 100-0 portfolio that that falls subject to market timing and can't control their behavior, right? So the bet, they say the best portfolio is the one you can stick with. So, you know, thinking about fixed income, you know, it should, it should produce some income, but really it's volatile, you know, help, help you manage your behavior and make volatility easier to stomach because it's difficult behaviorally going from receiving a paycheck to just having, having a pile of money that's supposed to last you for an indefinite period of time with an indefinite amount of expenses to be incurred and an indefinite, you know, lack of clarity as to, okay, what will retirement look like for me? It's just, it's such uncharted territory that it's really difficult to, to kind of understand and to make that transition. Yes. And we probably need to cover one of the most important items now to, to wrap things up. And that is how you actually invest the stock portion because that has a huge impact. If you wanna if you want to go above 4% and take five or 6% from your portfolio, how you invest the stock portion is real critical. Jared, back to Bill Bangan's 4% rule. Uh, the original thought process, what were most of the stocks invested in in that scenario? Yeah, you touched on this earlier, but it was the S&P primarily. So primarily large US companies. And just, we harp on this pretty much every invest, investment episode, we find a way to finagle it in there, but global diversification matters from a sequence of returns risk perspective. There's what's called the lost decade. So if you invested in US large growth uh, from 2000 to 2009, your investments were flat. You didn't return anything, but the globally diversified equity investor returned probably 3%, which isn't great by historical standards, but drastically changes the the amount of outcomes right and then t 2010 to 2020 you know you were handsomely compensated for being a u.s equity investor specifically a u.s large equity investor but one of the things we don't like about bangan's research is it's all u.s equity and of course you know publishing that paper in the 90s it was probably more difficult to aggregate that data in the way that maybe not as difficult now but Prudent risk management and being globally diversified really matters because investment returns vary wildly by region. We we do live in, in an interconnected world, but markets do different things at different times for different reasons. And we believe in global capitalism, that innovation and continuing to, to grow and expand and increase productivity, it's happening all across the world and not just not just the U.S., Yes, critical to understand that. I want to just highlight one of the words that you said, and that is an entire topic that we covered, sequence of return risk. 
One thing that I'll be the first to admit is when you look at 30-year graphs, typically U.S. equities to international equities are really similar. So in other words, I mean, they, they don't have a huge variance of, of what they're going to return. They're, they're pretty equal. But over, my goodness, over a 5- and 10-year window, huge variance. And again, uh, we don't get to live our life in 30-year windows where you just don't touch your capital for 30 years. Sometimes you do, but often in retirement, you are using your portfolio for income. So in other words, what the market does over a five-year period has a huge impact on your life. And so that's why we don't want to put everything in one bucket, not just theoretically. Let's go back to the 4% rule. What did Bangin find? So Bangin goes back to his research several years later and comes back and says, if you add small caps to the mix within the U.S., uh, you can take more than 4%. Super quick anecdote that is very interesting. Uh, if you put everything in your portfolio in U.S. small caps and you try to figure out what's a withdrawal rate that works, there were multiple periods where you could have taken a 25% withdrawal rate from your portfolio if you just had everything in small caps. Not a good idea, not endorsing it at all. This is not legal tax or investment advice. Uh, just give an extra disclaimer for you there. But very interesting just how much small caps add to the return. But I bet too, and I, I haven't seen the paper, but I'd love to look at it. I'm sure the percent, the number of times that things went to zero was also probably higher than the than the standard 60-40 portfolio, just because you know the downside of that volatility. All it does, all the volatility does, is it increases the range of outcomes on the upside and the downside. So, you know, while everybody hears that and says, "Hey, I," you know, it's easy to say, "Man, I want to go to small caps," but then remembering the volatility associated with that, okay, it becomes much easier to abandon that strategy and the percentage of outcomes that result in negative terminal investment assets is also higher, right? So having to blend is probably the more the more prudent approach for most people. That is absolutely right. And that same principle holds true. That's why we include international and emerging markets. And we include real estate in our portfolios. So if you go from a growth bucket that has one, one exposure, U.S. large cap, and then all of a sudden you have five exposures, you have U.S. large cap, U.S. small cap, international stocks, emerging market international stocks, real estate exposure. When you expand your portfolio in that manner, uh, you really cover some of the sequence of return risk. And again, what is a, a value that a great advisor can add? taking from that growth bucket over time to refill your war chest of cash and bonds. Because in retirement, you're going to start to deplete your five-year war chest, right? So it needs to be replenished. So a huge value add is understanding of your diversified portfolio that is in the growth category, how much of that where from that growth category should some of your returns be taken to refill the war chest over time. And so again, if you do those things, you can increase from the 4% rule and maximize what you're taking in retirement income from your portfolio. Yeah. And that's a great place to wrap up. The most important thing to remember is there are things you can do, but it's personal, right? It's it's subject to your risk tolerance, your preferences, your investments, and your desired future retirement. And understanding that you can determine a withdrawal rate now, but you know, in light of the guardrails Justin was talking about, that's gonna that could change, right? So it's important to 
be methodical about it, and then also continue to monitor it and have a process in place for continuing to implement it. And we recommend consulting with with a trusted professional. We'd love to hear uh, what you think or how you're thinking about this related to your portfolio. As always, if you have any questions, podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. We love hearing from you and learning more about what you're thinking about, what's on your mind, and, and what you want to hear us talk about. Uh, we realized this episode was longer than some of them, but this is an important topic to cover and something that weighs heavy on the minds of our clients and a lot of people who are making that transition to retirement. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.